Hi, good morning. My name is Mark. This is my wife, Jenny. You guys actually might know our son more. He's a two-and-a-half-year-old that kind of wanders around the hallways. So I'm really <laughs> excited. Um, but we've been coming to Love Chapel Hill for about uh, four months. We actually stumbled across Love Chapel Hill. And, and when we found it, my son was actually so excited, right, because of the love bus. I mean, he is enamored with the love bus. We might actually have to start driving the love bus so that he can ride with us and, and go pick people up. But um, we moved to Chapel Hill about a year ago, and, uh, you know, there was, I think, a little bit of a gap in our lives here. We really love Chapel Hill, but there was a gap until we found this place here. And for us, beyond our son and the love bus, for us, it was, uh, there were probably three things we noticed a lot when we were talking about it, and that was, you know, one, this was a place where you could come and you'd be seen and heard when you walk in the door and not just slip in and slip out. Uh, it was also a beautifully unique and diverse place. And the people here, as you get to know them, really do seem to want to live out this mission of loving Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus, which I know those of you that come a lot can hear all the time. Uh, so as we read something for you today, we just wanted to encourage you, if, you've, if you're new or if you've been here for a while and you're that person that maybe slips in and slips out, uh, to get to know the people here to stop by one of the tables because from our perspective, at least, these people are the real deal. Uh, and it's an exciting place to be. And we're excited to be plugging in. So let's, let's read something for you here. This comes from Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to the, said to the girl, Talitha kum, 
which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began walking around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. The word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, I want us to start today before we dive into this passage um, by spending a few moments in prayer for some friends of ours, um, partner churches of ours. And uh, one of the, the dreams that we've had from a church as a church from early days is, is to be a part of helping other churches also get started. Uh, we benefited so much from people supporting us, walking beside us, coaching us, and, and pouring leadership into us. And we, we, from the beginning, felt like that's something God was calling us into as well. And so there are a couple of churches that we're walking with and partnering with um, that are in transition today, and it's a big, really big day for them. And so we want to pause right now and celebrate what's happening with them, uh, but also pray for the Lord's guidance and um, that they would just sense an overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit and an overwhelming sense of confirmation that as they step into this new thing that God's called them into, um, that they would sense that confirmation, that they are hearing the word of the Lord correctly and that they're moving in obedience to that. So let's stop and, and let's pray for them today. The two churches are Union Point Church in New Bern, North Carolina, and United City Greensboro. Uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Actually, at, at Union Point, uh, Jackson's sister is on staff there, which is cool to have that connection between our churches. And at United City, uh, somebody who used to be a leader here is a part of their team there as well. So there's a lot of family connection going on. And uh, so we want to pray for them and lift them up today. Jesus, we thank you for these churches and uh, the, the fact that they aren't just uh, partner churches, but they're they're true friends. And we want to lift them up today. We thank you for the way that you have been moving and guiding them and leading them, for the way that you planted a dream in their hearts and that you've been faithful to cultivate that and to mark out the path for them every step of the way. And so today we pray for Pastor Aaron and for his whole team at Union Point Church in New Bern as they move from, they recently moved into a new building, but now they're moving in, into two services as they continue to grow as a congregation. And God, we just pray that you would blow them away today with your love, with your kindness, with a really clear sense uh, that you are moving in that congregation. And not only in that congregation, but you're moving in that community and that they get to be a part of what you're doing there. So we just pray for them. We bless them today. We lift them up and encourage them today. And we pray for United City Greensboro and Pastor Spencer and his team. And uh, we just ask that you would be with them as they move from the, their location that they started in into a new location at, at the Y in downtown Greensboro today. And God, we just pray that that would be a, a move that they'll look back on and see that your hand was all over it as they now root themselves in this place that is really at the heart of their whole community and how many hundreds of families come through there on a on a daily basis and on a weekly basis 
And um, I pray that you would weave them together with the story of the why there and that they would uh, see Holy Spirit opportunities to impact their community, that you would make connections for that church that they can't make for themselves, and that you would pave the way for them, um, lead them in ways that they haven't even dreamed of and imagined yet. So God, we pray for these friends, and uh, we pray that you would continue to move in their congregations. And uh, we ask, like we prayed last week, for them, we pray for us as well, that you would bring us into harvests together as churches, bring us into a harvest that is beyond us, that's out of our hands, that's not something that we can cook up. Uh, we want to move in your spirit and move where you're leading, not where what, what, what we can dream up. So help us, Lord. So in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Keep them in prayer, okay? Union Point Church and United City Greensboro. Keep them in prayer. They're our friends, they're our brothers and sisters. Awesome. So as we dive into this passage today, uh, let's get a little bit of orientation on where we've been so far uh, in this series of Once and Future Kingdom. And what we mean by that is we're unpacking and exploring the, the kingdom of God and, and what Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God. It's, it's central to his teaching. He keeps coming back to this question over and over again. What is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? And he explains that through parables, and we see it break out through stories in his interactions with people. And so we're walking through uh, the gospel of Mark and and unpacking that together. What does the kingdom of God look like? And so we started in in Mark chapter 1 with the message of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. The the promises of the past and all the hope of the future brought together in Jesus Christ. He is the king of the once and future kingdom. It all collides in him. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, the kingdom is established by his very presence. And he invites us into that. Repent, he says, turn away from the way that you've been headed and turn into this new path that I'm carving out for you. Repent, believe the good news. The good news is this, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. So second, we looked at the ministry of Jesus last week, and we looked at this parable uh, that Jesus told about the seeds and the way that Jesus tells this parable about a farmer who goes and sows seeds. And, and, and he, whether he lays down at night or whether he gets up to work, no matter what he does, there's something that's happening underneath the surface And the power of the harvest is out of that farmer's hands. And it's very clear that God is the one who is bringing about the harvest. And we're praying for that as a congregation. Every Wednesday at 8 o'clock, we're meeting right here at the Varsity Theater, 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, just an old school prayer meeting, all right? And we're not, it's not a Bible study. It's not like a strategy meeting, anything like that. We're just getting together to pray and to seek the Lord and to ask him, to lead us into a harvest that's beyond anything that we can cook up for ourselves. So we invite you to join us in that. Everybody's welcome to be a part of that. The Varsity Theater right here, 8 o'clock Wednesday morning. Today, we're taking the next step, and we're looking at the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus. So that's going to be unpacked today in this story that we got. Thank you, Mark and Jenny, for reading that for us. We're going to see through this story a glimpse of the mission of Jesus. 
the great C.S. Lewis, who is my spirit animal, <laughs> and Patronus, always, all right, <laughs> said this in his, in his great book, Mere Christianity, I've been sick all week, oh, I'm still sick, so the medicine might be doing a number on me today. <laughs> So let me just apologize up front. Now you're like, oh, that makes sense. All right. Here's what he says in his great book, Mere Christianity. Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. What a way of saying that. It's beautiful. Yeah, we got some amens on sabotage up in here. <laughs> some Beastie Boys fans today. Awesome. <laughs> it's the Madison. Um, that, that's it. That's what this is, man. The kingdom of God pushing back against the empire of the world. The rightful king has landed and things are starting to change. That's what we see in this story today. We begin to see what the reign of God looks like when the reign of God is unleashed in the world. So remember, as we look at these two miracles that are tied together today, remember this, miracles always reveal two things. We keep coming back to this over and over again. But when you see a miracle of Jesus in the gospel, it's not just to gain like some crowd support. It's not just to convince some people, oh, wow, okay, yeah, there's something about this guy. It's not to build up hype or buzz around the ministry of Jesus. It always is pointing beyond the miracles. The, the immediate miracle is important without a doubt, but it's always pointing to an ultimate reality. So the miracles of Jesus are always pointing to two things, his identity, who he is, and his mission, why he came. So that's what we're going to look at today. This immediate reality is pointing to the ultimate reality. So the question that we're going to wrestle with through this story is this. What do these miracles tell us about his mission? What do these miracles tell us about his mission? We're going to look at the immediate and the ultimate. So let's dig in here. There are two stories that are told and they're intertwined together and they're inseparable from each other. Okay, it seems like you could pull these two out and tell them as, as completely separate stories, right? You can pull the story out of the middle and, and they would stand together or they would stand apart from each other and you could tell them like that. But it's interesting that the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell these, these two stories together. None of them separate them out. Even though they have different ways at times of telling the story, they all tell them together. They tell them together. And that's telling us something, that these are built for each other. They are made together. So let, let's dig into it and look at it, all right? So we get the synagogue ruler, Jairus, who comes up. And um, he's a synagogue ruler, which means that he's a respected member of the community. Uh, he's a part of the religious establishment. So he's this leader type figure, a religious leader in the community, is a part of the religious apparatus. And so there's, a, there's an amount of respect and there's this amount of influence that automatically comes with that. 
So he's coming to Jesus. This man with a full resume is coming to Jesus in the midst of this crowd. But none of that resume matters to him at this moment. It doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is this. He's, he, he becomes one thing in this moment. He's a desperate father. He's a desperate father, and that's the only thing that is on his mind. He's not trying to leverage influence or anything like that. He's not trying to use his connections. He's coming to Jesus because he's a desperate father. Uh, different uh, commentators point out that it's interesting that he comes on his own. Right? He seems to come by himself to Jesus. Why would a father whose daughter is on her deathbed moments left to live leave the side of his daughter to go get help? Probably because nobody else would do it. Probably because nobody else would do it. As you know, Jesus was not exactly a favorite among the synagogue crowd, right? He was not respected by most of the people in the religious establishment. He was seen as an outcast, as an outsider, as this itinerant preacher who's stirring up all of this trouble and controversy. And so probably most of his connections and his friends and maybe even other people in his family didn't want to get Jesus involved in this. But he's desperate and he goes by himself and he falls at the knees of Jesus, falls on his knees in front of Jesus and he pleads with him, please come, please come. All of his pride is cast away. Every part of his resume that he spent his life building up doesn't matter. He's desperate for Jesus's help. He knows Jesus is the only one that can help. I don't know, maybe that's where some of you are today. Maybe some of you are in that same scenario. You're here and you don't even know if you believe in Jesus. Maybe it's really weird to you. You think Christians are weird and you don't really trust them and you think Christianity is messed up, but there's something about this person of Jesus that's made you show up here today. You're curious. You might be skeptical. You might be opposed to Christianity and institutional religion on, on intellectual grounds, but yet there's something about this person of Jesus that has captured your heart and your curiosity and you feel drawn to him. Your friends are going to think you've lost it if you open up and tell them what you're wrestling with. Your family might think that you've lost it. But there's something about Jesus. You've heard about him. Maybe you've even done some research on your own. And you're here because you're seeking him. Be like Jairus. Lay down your pride. Lay down your pride today. All of the reasons that you've stacked up of saying, man, I, I don't think I can do this because of this. Lay down your pride. You know he's real. There's something about it. There's something about him. Today's the day. Lay down your pride. The story goes on. It says this. He begs Jesus, come and just put your hands on her. And if you touch her, then she will be healed. She'll be brought back from the brink of death. And you can save her. And you're the only one who can. There's something that we get that, that's going to play out through the rest of the story here. And we get this sense of it at the beginning in this power of touch. The direct encounter with Jesus that people understand that has the power to change everything. And he's begging for him. Come, come. Just your touch 
will make the difference. Jesus, it says, goes with him, agrees right away to go. Then they're interrupted, right? They're interrupted by something that happens. There's this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Nobody really knows exactly what this medical condition is. People have all kind of ideas about what it might be. Nobody knows exactly. But what we do know is this, that in that culture and in that time, a condition like this, someone who had a condition like this, made, it brought about more than just the physical effect. All right. There's also a social effect and there's a religious effect to it as well. And it all brought together a sense of rejection around this woman, because in the religious language of her day, because of her condition, she would have been considered unclean. She would have been considered unclean, which means that she wasn't allowed to go to worship, which in the mindset of that day meant she's cut off from a relationship with God. Because of her condition and her uncleanness, it goes beyond that. She's also cut off from her community and relationship with other people around her because it was understood that if she touched someone, then her uncleanness would pass to them. The uncleanness was a contagious kind of state. And so if she was to touch anyone else, then her uncleanness would pass to them. Once again, the power of touch in this culture. And so because of this, she was rejected. She was cut off from God. She was cut off from community. And that's the reality that she lived in. It's interesting that we've got this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years in the same story as the synagogue leader. Right? Because the synagogue leader is a part of the same religious apparatus that kept her cut off. And that maintained her rejection. And yet here they come colliding into this story together, both of them around the person of Jesus. It says she tried everything. She went to every doctor. And if you do some research, man, some of the some of the techniques that they had for addressing a problem like this in that day, they are way out there. All right. No, no wonder it didn't work. And no wonder it actually made her worse when you read some of it. But it also just heaped up shame on her more and more and just heaped up more and more sense of hopelessness around her condition this was not getting better it was getting worse this was her future and she was going to have to live and die that way it's because of this cultural sense of rejection and shame and desperation that she has to sneak her way through the crowd And her plan is this, if I can just grab the very edge of his clothing, then maybe something will happen. That's my only hope. Her plan is to sneak up on Jesus in this way. Jesus being a devout Jewish man in that day and time, the devout Jewish men wore an outer robe that had four tassels. Uh, that were on each corner of the garment. And that's probably what it was that she is reaching for. Not just the edge, but like the farthest extension of his clothing. Something that's barely got any contact with him, but she had this sense, if I can just touch that, then I'll be transformed. And so she secretly works her way through the crowd and reaches out to touch the fringe of his garment. And as she lays hands on it, 
Jesus' grand campaign of sabotage sets into motion. And he begins to push back the normal order of the world. And by touching Jesus, she should have made him unclean. Remember that? Like the uncleanness is what's contagious and it passes. And by touching him, she should have made him unclean. But instead, his power reverses the status quo. And this campaign of sabotage turns into the wholeness of Jesus passing to her. It works in reverse. His cleanness passes to her. And can you imagine her shock and her joy and her heartbreaking relief? As the power of Jesus works through her, surges through her, and she knows in an instant, in a moment, that a real change has taken place. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Who touched me, Jesus says. It says Jesus felt the power leaving him. We don't really know exactly how to unpack that, all right? But Jesus felt that power, it says, leaving him, and he begins to turn around in the crowd, and he says, who touched me? Who was it? Who touched my garment? Who touched me? And Jesus is calling for her to step out into the light. The disciples are saying, what are you, why are you even asking this? Like, everybody's touching you. There's a huge crowd around you. We're all bumping against you. What do you mean, who touched you? But Jesus won't stop, and he keeps looking around, and he says, who was it who touched me? And this woman who has lived her life in the shadows of shame, Jesus won't let her stay there any longer. He's not going to let her just touch the edge of his garment and then sneak away as if nothing happened. He's calling her out of the shadows. He's rejecting her rejection. He's calling her into the light. He wants to look her in the eye so that his love will heal more than just her sickness. It will reach all the way to the depths of her soul. And in the middle of this massive crowd of people, she steps forward and she says, it was me. And it says she tells the whole truth. She tells the whole truth. And it says that Jesus speaks to her. And he uses this interesting language. Yes, he says, go and be at peace and suffer no more. Your faith has healed you. But to me, I think that one of the most important words in that whole statement is this. He refers to her as daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, why is that important? Because this is a person who's lived with rejection. She's been cut off from her relationship with God. She's been cut off from her relationship with her community. And in the midst of this, Jesus speaks reconciliation to her. And he brings her into relationship. And he says, daughter, you're healed. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and suffer no more. Daughter. This is the first part of the mission of Jesus. It's reconciliation. It's reconciliation. This is what he's come to do to bring us back into a reconciled relationship with the Father through the power of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes it clear to us in this moment, and he makes it clear to you, nobody's untouchable. Nobody's untouchable. You might walk through this world feeling rejected, You might walk through this world feeling like that's the label that's been put on you. Rejection. Rejection. You're cut off. 
barriers, there's walls, rejection. But Jesus says nobody's untouchable. Nobody's untouchable. And the touch of Jesus has the power to transform your life. It can reach all the way to you. It can reach all the way to you. He wants to do the same for you today. For some of you, he's calling you out of the shame of the shadows and calling you into the light because he wants to look you in the eye. And like Mark was saying, he doesn't want you to slip in and slip out. He wants to, to look you in the eye and say, I love you. I love you deeply. And to allow his love to heal the depth of your soul, not just your sickness, but every part of who you are. That's the first part of the mission of Jesus is reconciliation. As the story goes on, it says this, while Jesus was still speaking, they came and they brought the heartbreaking news that the daughter had passed away. While Jesus was paused to help this other woman, the young daughter passed away. Now for the medical people in the room, that is very frustrating for you. You see that and, and it makes you angry because you say Jesus' priorities are out of line right here. Like the triage approach that Jesus should have taken in this moment. Everybody knows that you don't stop and give attention to a chronic illness that's been going on for 12 years and that's going to keep going on. You don't stop and take time for that person when somebody else is in an emergency scenario who's hanging by a thread of life and death. Keep moving, Jesus. Don't stop for this person. We've got a more urgent scenario over here. Don't get distracted by smaller things. But Jesus understands that people are not a distraction. People are his focus. And in this moment, because Jesus stopped, we also learn and we're reminded that in the timing of God, there's no such thing as too late. There's no such thing as too late. They come and they say, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. There's nothing that can be done. Your daughter is dead. Jesus turns to him and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Having seen what he had already done for this woman, you know that that filled that man with faith. So then Jesus goes with them. They go into the house. And the house is filled with mourners in this culture and in this day and time. You would actually hire professional mourners to come to a funeral to show how deeply you were grieving. And so people would come and it it says that there would even be flute players who would come. And no matter how much money you had, you were required to hire at least two flute players for a funeral. All right. Imagine that on Craigslist. Okay. All right. But Jesus comes in and you got the flute players and you got the crowd and you got people wailing and mourning and all of this grieving that's going on. And Jesus cuts through. He sees the authentic grieving and the true mourning that's happening with the father and with the family. But he cuts through the rest of it and he tells everybody else to get out, get out. She's not, don't, don't overreact. She's only sleeping, he says. And the people all laugh at Jesus and they mock Jesus for that because they think he doesn't have a clue. Jesus chases everyone out and he takes only his inner core of disciples with him and he takes the parents with him into the little girl's room and then we get these words that Jesus speaks to her 
these words that are in Aramaic. It's interesting that, that the, the writing here is in Greek, and yet they keep the translation in Aramaic because the common speaking language of Jesus' day was Aramaic. Jesus spoke in that language, but the Gospels are recording everything in Greek, but they keep it in Aramaic. Why? Because these words are important. Because they're magic words that we can use to make things happen for us too? No, all right? Don't go try that. This is not the force, all right? Talitha kuom, all right? It's not going to work. I tried, all right? Why are they important? Here's why. Because there's such a depth of tenderness that is captured in these words that don't just translate easily. So they keep it in this language. The pastor and writer, Tim Keller, one of my favorites, he says this, that word Talitha means not just little girl. It means something more than that. There's a sense of deep tenderness in it. It's the kind of like pet name, he says, that like a mom would give to her young child. He, he says it'd be better translated not just as little girl, but, but more like in our language as honey. All right, something sweet, something tender like that. This kind of family term, honey, honey. And and that this kuom means to get up and to arise. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Honey, get up. Honey, get up. And it's beautiful because here he is. He's facing down the greatest fear and greatest threat to all of humanity. The threat and the fear that every one of us share together. The reality of death. The finality of death. It's not something we like to talk about. It's not something we like to pause and think about. But it's a fear that every one of us has. What is that going to be like? The finality of it. The strength of it. The fact that we can't shake it off when it comes. But Jesus goes toe-to-toe, and here he is gearing up for a battle with the greatest foe that humanity has. And as we brace ourselves for this fight, what does Jesus do when he comes in there? Does he come in guns blazing? No. He sits down on the edge of a little girl's bed, and he takes her by the hand, and he whispers, Honey, it's time to get up now. It's time to get up now. Do you see the strength and the power that Jesus has? That he can speak to our greatest foe of death. And all he has to do is whisper. And it has to submit and obey him. I love it. The author Sally Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. She says that Jesus reached down gently into death and lifted her back up into life. Honey, it's time to get up now. And that's how her story goes. We see in this, first of all, there's the mission of reconciliation. And in this story, we see the mission of resurrection. This is why Jesus has come. He's come to overcome sin and that separation and the break in our relationship with God and to bring us into reconciled relationship with the Father through the cross. And he's come to overcome death. And what he did in his victory in the empty tomb. 
and that is ours. And he fills us with resurrection life. This is the mission of Jesus revealed in these two miracles, reconciliation and resurrection, reconciliation and resurrection. Did you notice how old the little girl is in the story? Who noticed? How old is she? Twelve. How long had the woman been suffering? Twelve years. That connection. These two stories are connected together. There's so many overlaps and so many ways in which they're connected together. And our stories are connected in that same way. And just like the father and just like the woman, every single one of us comes with a desperation for Jesus. We're connected in that. And he's our only hope for for reconciliation. And just like the father and just like the woman and the little girl, he's our only hope for resurrection. And he calls us in to new life. We can be forgiven of our sins and be given new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The immediate realities of these miracles are pointing to the greater reality that Jesus has come. This is what his kingdom looks like. It looks like a grand campaign of sabotage as he begins to undercut and push back and overcome the power of sin and death in this world and instead put in its place the power of reconciliation and resurrection. He's the king. This is his kingdom. And this is what it looks like. Maggie, come lead us in communion, please. In a continuation of uh, Mark's gospel, Matt had us in the beginning. We're going to move a little bit forward. Uh, In chapter 12, we find Jesus gathered with friends at a table. And the table reflects the table that we find in front of us today. And the words of Mark, uh, spoken by Jesus to his 12 disciples who were seated with him are said to us as well. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Those words are spoken to us today, and I encourage you as you come forward, take a moment of confession, not perhaps just of your lack or maybe your wrongs or your, the things that you're struggling with today, but a confession of belief that you believe the significance of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. And take note, too, that it's not just for you individually, but for us corporately. That we as a community reflect the table. And that as you move from this table and you go throughout your day, that you are mindful of inviting others to come and join you to eat. 
and to break bread and to drink the cup. So, Father, we invite your spirit to come and bless these simple, ordinary things. This bread and this cup, Jesus, we recognize that these represent you. And as traditional churches might often see around the table, do this in remembrance of me, we recognize and remember Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and his power and authority as our Lord and Savior. I invite you to come. There's a gluten-free option for those of you in need of that. Uh, We'll be serving from this side and from over here.